I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 through 5 this morning. And I do pray that it never grows tired on your heart or in your mind that what we just did, lifting up our voices freely to proclaim the name of God, is something that so many people around the world do not have that freedom, nor that access, not even the knowledge of what God to sing to. May we take in this morning and be filled up. But then may we give it back out, whether here in Lynchburg or maybe God will call you to the nations. That you will radiate the holiness and the goodness and the glory of God. The book of Hebrews is all about the glory of Christ and who he is. Telling us that he is worthy, that he is qualified. If you look through the book of Hebrews, the word better is used 13 times to show the superiority of Jesus, that he is better, with a better hope, with a better covenant, with a better office, and he comes from a better priesthood. The word perfect is used 14 times to describe that we have a perfect standing before God, a perfection that could never be accomplished through the Levitical priesthood. That we have a perfect mediator. That Jesus is a perfect sacrifice. And Hebrews 10 says that he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Eternal is another word that is used throughout the book of Hebrews. That Jesus is the author of eternal salvation. That through his death he has obtained an eternal redemption and an eternal inheritance. That his throne is forever. And that when you combine these three important terms, you discover that Jesus Christ and the Christian life he gives are better because the blessings that he gives are eternal and they give us a perfect standing before God. And if you fully grasp this identity, it empowers us unto mission. And what is mission? To radiate the glory of Christ to the nations, here and around the world, in your family and in your home and in your neighborhood and in your workplace, to radiate the holiness and the goodness of Christ. As we look back at the book of Hebrews, we see in chapter 1 that Jesus is superior to angels, that he is eternal God, and there is no name like his name. He is the radiance of God, literally the imprint of God. So don't drift or neglect such a great salvation. There's warnings throughout the book of Hebrews. Don't neglect who Christ is. Don't drift from who he is. He is the, the perfect man who restores man's royalty through his sacrifice. The royalty originally created in Adam and Eve. Jesus is superior to Abraham. He completes the promise of Abraham. So consider Jesus, chapter 3 urges us. Think on him. Consider him. Do not ignore him. Do not shelf him. But think on him. He who is a better intercessor than Moses. And don't be like the Israelites. Don't harden your hearts in unbelief or the deceitfulness of sin. Sin hardens our hearts a drop at a time. A drop of arsenic that poisons the well of our souls. Don't harden your hearts. 
Jesus is superior to Joshua. He brings a better rest than Joshua brought. He's a superior high priest, chapter 5, of a better priestly qualification. So don't neglect him, chapter 6 says. Don't fall away. And if you wonder, is Jesus qualified? Oh, he comes from a much better priesthood than the Levitical priesthood, from the Aaronic, from Aaron's priesthood. He's a Melchizedekian priest, a king priest of righteousness and eternal peace. And he has brokered a superior peace treaty through his death than ever was accomplished in the Old Testament. And this Jesus ministers in a better sanctuary. And if he is better qualified with a better name and a better ministry and gives a better rest and he has a better sacrifice with a better covenant in a better place, then Jesus Christ is the only hope. That's the argument that Hebrews is trying to make. And he ministers in a better sanctuary. And this is where we come to chapter 9, verse 1 through 5. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. What he is speaking of is the Old Testament tabernacle. And he's giving us a little bit of a tour through its interior. First of all, you have the holy place where there is the lampstand. 75 pounds of pure gold. The golden menorah was the only light in the tabernacle or later the temple. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. A direct reference to that lampstand that was in the holy place. The true light. Then we have... Once you walk into this holy place, you also have on the right here the bread of the presence, symbolizing the covenant between God and his people. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, it was a direct reference to that table, that he is the new covenant, the new provision of life. Now, as you approach the back of the holy place, there is a curtain drawn, and in front of the curtain, there is the altar of incense, which is directly tied to the Holy of Holies, but actually stood on the outside. And this place where incense was burned before the high priest went into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain once a year, the Ark of the Covenant, the lid of the Ark, called the mercy seat, with two cherubim angels, wings outstretched over the Ark. And in the Ark, the law the staff that budded, and the manna. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about some of these articles. But all of these articles serve to express a singular purpose, the holiness of God. This is called the, the earthly holy place we see here in chapter 9, verse 1. 
There's the holy place inside, the most holy place where the ark is kept. And this is the earthly place where God made his presence known and where the priests ministered. But we learn from Hebrews that the tabernacle, the temple, this holy place, these are images, representations of a greater heavenly place. And as the argument goes, if greater, and if Jesus ministers in that greater place, then the salvation is greater and more secure. Many Christians, because we're so removed, especially if you come from a Baptistic or evangelical tradition, we're so removed from ritual and liturgy that we ask the question, why all of these things in the tabernacle? Why all of these things in the temple? And why from the outside into the inner holy place to the holy of holies, why all of these rituals before you could move into the inner sanctum? And every single act and ritual was meant to express the unapproachable holiness of God and your unworthiness. So much so that most of the people could never enter into the holy place and only the high priest could enter into the holy of holies. And yet, in the same breath, it is the expression that God has made a way. It's not fully open yet, but he is working to make a way to his holiness where we who are unholy can come into his presence. If we are going to grasp the significance of Jesus' role and work on our behalf, we must gain a sense of the awe and the fear of the holiness of God. Lest we treat Christ's sacrifice as something that is just simple and not profound. And something where we just kind of prance into the holy of holies of God's presence, not thinking twice about with whom we talk or the sins that we carry in with us. And the Bible warns again and again, we treat the holiness of God lightly. You reject the ultimate expression of the holiness of God in Jesus Christ. There is only one answer, and it's a just answer. We call it eternal hell. It is the only response just enough, holy enough, good enough, right enough to express the offense against the holiness of God. Holiness, what is it? The world sees that which is holy as something that is a foreign, strange, and even hostile concept to their lifestyle and mindset. Even we as Christians, we pick and choose what is holy. We pick and choose what, what, what we think is pure according to our own comforts and our own place in life. When we think about those realities of God's holiness, do we consider His goodness, His righteousness, and His mercy? When we think of goodness and God, and love, and mercy. It is all wrapped up in His holiness. Do we appreciate the infinite holiness of God? Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. I know we're going to a different place, but this has a direct correlation a direct correlation to what we're talking about this morning. 
Looking at the parallel place between the holiness of God in the earthly place and the true holy throne room. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 5. And here's what I want you to do for just a moment. Read verse 1 to 3 quietly by yourself. Read verse 1 to 3 quietly by yourself. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Hebrews has just described in chapter 9 the earthly tabernacle and temple structure that symbolized a greater heavenly reality. And that greater heavenly reality we see in Isaiah 6. Now we're going to do some dot connecting here. Some dot connecting that will help us grasp a greater sense of biblical theology between the Old Testament and the New Testament and also between what Isaiah saw and who Christ is. But let's unpack this heavenly scene. For in a year of geopolitical tumult and the waning of the glory years of Israel with the death of Uzziah, this was one of the, the markers that, that began the downward spiral beyond where it already was, God grounds Isaiah, not with the glory of a restored Israel, but he grounds Isaiah's thinking and mindset by giving him a glimpse of God himself. And in the world around us, even right now, as we see the news and we see what's going on, our hearts grieve us, we pray for it, but we also must be grounded by getting a clear vision of who God is. And Uzziah saw that. Sorry, Isaiah saw that. He saw Adon, the sovereign ruler. I saw the Lord, that word. It means the Lord of all, or absolute Lord. No contestation. He is the one whom Daniel 7 spoke of. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. 
A stream of, stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Both Daniel, Isaiah, and then later in the New Testament, John in the book of Revelation are describing a heavenly throne room. And when we look in Hebrews 9 and we see the tabernacle and the temple, you must understand this is not simply a place of worship. But it is the earthly throne room of God. That the tabernacle in the wilderness was the portable throne of God, the place where God made his dwelling place known. And to approach that throne room, to approach the holiness of God, was a severe and significant act that required the utmost of humility, of recognizing who he is and what you're not. And all the rituals and the ceremony just reinforced that. And Isaiah stands there. He sees the throne high and lifted up. And the train of the robe of God fills the temple. His majesty maxes out the thresholds of the temple. There is nowhere Isaiah looks and doesn't see the revealed glory and majesty of Adon. The sovereign one. Whom did Isaiah see though? When he had this vision of the one sitting on the throne, whom did Isaiah see? He saw Yahweh. But he saw more than that. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. Isaiah's attention is then drawn to the seraphim. Seraph. In the Hebrew word, which means burning one. These are beings of pure power. The burning ones, the holy ones. Some have said that they bear an image to the serpent. And that the serpent in the garden is just the fallen expression of what the angel should be. That's a misinterpretation of the Hebrew word. Seraph, S-E. Snake, saraf. These are not serpents. That's, a, that's some Christian mythology that I've heard again and again, so forgive me when occasionally I drop something in just to help give maybe a biblical understanding of something that we've heard in church or elsewhere. This is not a serpent-like being. This is a fire being. One who burns with the power and the authority and the passion for worshiping God. With two wings they cover their feet, with two wings they fly, and with two wings they cover their face because they behold the holiness of God. In the tabernacle in the temple, as you walked into the temple in the tabernacle, there were cherubs, other angelic beings, that were emblazoned on the walls. And then on the curtain, before you went to the Holy of Holies, there were two cherubs. And then over the Ark of the Covenant, there were two cherubs. And the cherubs are, are the guardian warriors of God's holiness. So the angelic host that we see in Isaiah is mimicked and illustrated in the temple, in the tabernacle, to emphasize that he is the Lord of hosts. And they say, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. 
holy, holy, holy. What does the word kadosh mean? The possibilities seem to be brightness or separateness. Brightness suggesting the unapproachability of God and separateness distinguishing how he is in a category all by himself. He is holy other. It is his total and unique moral majesty. You know in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, whenever someone beholds the unveiled glory of God, their response is not sheer omnipotence and they fall in fear. Do a study. Every single time they see the unveiled glory of God, it is not the sheer power that arrests them, it is the sheer holiness that arrests them. Isaiah says, Woe, I'm a man undone. John falls on his face in the book of Revelation. Because of the severe awareness of God's holiness and majestic glory of purity and their conscious knowledge of how unworthy they are. It's the, the Pauline, I am the chief of all sinners, the least of all saints. God is in himself the holy one, the separate one, beyond or above the world, true light, spotless purity, and the perfect one. Stephen Charnock, uh, in 1628, he was born, was a Puritan preacher, and I've been working very slowly through a book that's about 700 pages called The Existence and the Attributes of God. And for a month, I've been meditating on just one section, the holiness of God. And some of these thoughts do not come from me, but rather come from him. We're unpacking God's word. He says, holiness is a glorious perfection belonging to the nature of God. This name, holy, is more affixed to the name of God than any other. You never find it expressed in the Bible, his mighty name, his wise name, his great name. You, you hear him called wise or most powerful, but only is it called his holy name, the Holy One of Israel. There's a specific designation here. That holiness is pure and unmixed light, free from all blemish in essence, nature, and operations. And only is holy used in a treble of three. Holy, holy, holy. Never do you find something where it says eternal, 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 or faithful, faithful, faithful. All of these are true and glorious about our God, but only is the threesome trisagion paired, the thrice holy name of God, holy, holy, holy. In Revelation 4, John sees God and he hears once again in reference to Isaiah 6, them singing out, holy, holy, holy. Holiness is the attribute he makes the most of. When he is going to swear by his character in Psalm 89, God said, I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. He doesn't swear by his omnipotence, though he is. He swears by his holiness. 
Now, I'm not dividing God into parts. Matter of fact, I would rather say that holiness is the crown that draws all of the attributes together in perfect harmony. When you look at holiness, holiness is the beauty of God. If you, if you want to sin in them, you know, what, what is another word to describe holiness? Choose the word beauty. To be holy like God is to be beautiful like God. To live a holy life is to live a beautiful life. To pursue holiness in thoughts and actions are to pursue what Paul said, whatever is lovely, pure, beautiful things, beautiful thoughts are holy thoughts. Now, not everything we consider as beautiful is in fact holy, but everything that is holy is in fact beautiful. He is the beautiful one. The holiness of God is perfect and unpolluted and free from all evil. It is a strange, small shadow of evil, all imaginable contagion. He has an abhorrency for everything contrary to holiness. He perfectly abhors all evil. He does not only love that which is just, but abhors with a perfect hatred all things contrary to righteousness. Now, this is significant, brothers and sisters. Why does this matter? You're like, why are we having this, this, this course on systematic theology or, or biblical theology? Why does it matter? Because as you see a sovereign God play out events in Ukraine or Afghanistan or around the world, if he is anything less than holy, you should be terrified. But if he is holy and good and free from all evil and imperfection, that you know that as he works out his will, it is nothing less than absolute goodness, even though we don't understand it. He is holy, he is good, and there is not a spot, not an iota of contagion. Some have said, well, God's inability to do evil, is that a limitation and a limitation on his sovereignty? Charnock says it very eloquently. It is not a defect in God that he cannot do evil, but a fullness and excellency of power as it is not a weakness in the light, but the perfection of it, that it is unable to produce darkness. God is the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, James 17. So they call out to one another, these seraphim, these burning ones, holy, holy, holy. And it's an antiphonal song, back and forth. They call out one to another. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The building itself was seized with reverential awe throughout its whole extent and even to its deepest foundations, quaking with the chanting of the holiness of God. At this moment, you should ask the question like Isaiah did. Who are we to enter in? Who am I to walk into the throne room of God? Who am I to behold such majesty? All right, let's do something interactive here for just a moment. 
I know it's a spring forward day, so we may have not got as much sleep as we did. So let's stand up. Everybody stand up real quick. This half right here, right here, turn this way, please. Face this side. This half right here, turn this way. If you're out in the International Plaza or online, just join in wherever you want, okay? Here's what I want you to do. At this moment, right now, the Bible tells us there are cherubim and seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy. As we call out to God, you're just joining in. As I hold up my hand on this side, you, don't scream it, but shout it. Holy, holy, holy. When I hold up my hand over here, all of you respond. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Okay? Practice run. You ready? <laughs> holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. We ready? All right, let's try it. All right, that's good. But the angels quaked the foundations. <laughs> so we need to quake some foundations here. All right? Now, I also want to arrest your heart. I know this is kind of fun and funny in one way. When the angels did this, they covered their faces. I'm not asking you to cover your face. But cover the face of your heart. And know to whom you see and say, Holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with his glory. All right, holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with his glory. Just watch my hands, please. Holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with his glory. Holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with his glory. Holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with his glory. Please be seated. Can you imagine thousands upon thousands upon ten thousands of ten thousand of angels saying just that for all of eternity? Holy, holy, holy. And then Isaiah's response is, who am I? And so one of the seraphim fly from the altar and they take with tongs to grab a burning coal from the altar. You see, the altar with coals was a smoldering sacrifice. In the temple, in the tabernacle, there was a constant smoldering sacrifice. And it was from the sacrifice that purchased access into the holy place. The seraph uses tongs because the, the coals of that sacrifice are not his doing. He's not worthy to touch them. Someone else has accomplished that sacrifice that Isaiah sees. And so the seraph grabs tongs and places them on Isaiah's lips and says, your guilt is taken away. Your sins are atoned for. This is the power of a heavenly declaration of forgiveness. He says, I am unclean like a leper. Same word. Like a leper, I am unclean. But the guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for by the work of a sacrifice. A sacrifice that smolders eternally on the altar of heaven. But who ministers and affects this forgiveness? Let's go back to that question. Who is Isaiah looking at in Isaiah 6? 
Oh, he's looking at Yahweh. Yes, he is. But John chapter 12, verse 41. You don't have time to turn there, but write down the reference. John chapter 12, verse 41, and you can prove what I'm saying. This is what the Apostle John spoke of about Isaiah 6 and Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who is the him? Jesus. John makes an unbelievable statement that when Isaiah and Isaiah 6, now you may say, wait, hold on, the glory is speaking of, maybe he's talking about Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 speaks of his humiliation, and then there's glory in it. It's not the same glory. And John is quoting already from Isaiah 6, and he says, the glory of the holy, holy, holy one that Isaiah saw in heaven, the one that he saw on the throne, though Isaiah may not have known it at the time, Isaiah was looking upon Jesus himself. At Jesus the Son with his Father enthroned in majesty and the angels are saying to the Son, holy, 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 and to the Father, holy, 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 and the Spirit, the smoke that fills the room, the presence of the Spirit of God, holy, holy, holy. Jesus is the thrice holy God whom oversees a better covenant and declares a complete salvation. And the sacrifice, the smoldering ember, the altar of sacrifice that purged Isaiah's sin, not the sacrifice of blood and bulls or of some angelic being. That is the eternally smoldering, figuratively speaking, the eternally smoldering and burning sacrifice of Jesus himself that purged Isaiah, that purges us, the sacrifice of Jesus' death on a cross is a perfect sacrifice. This is not an earthly salvation, but an eternal salvation secured by the Holy One Himself, the One whom is our High Priest, the One whom is our sacrifice, the One who sits enthroned, the One who decrees before all of heaven, this One's guilt is taken away, their sin is atoned for, and so the argument of Hebrews goes... If you have an Isaiah-type salvation where before all of heaven you have been declared innocent, you've been declared righteous, been made holy, why would you go back to anything on this earth or anything in your own work? Do you not know that Jesus who is high and lifted up, the one whom Isaiah saw, eternally stands there and sits in finished work on your behalf? And both are true. He stands in action on our behalf, but sits in completion that the sacrifice is finished. Isaiah 6, verse 8, the result of this, Isaiah's response, he sees the Holy One of Israel. He sees the glory of Jesus, the sacrifice that he did not fully yet understand, but then purges his guilt. And after seeing this, he is so arisen with joy and with security when God says to him in verse 8, who will go? And Isaiah's like, me. I'll go. Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to that one. Whom then shall I fear? And whom shall I be afraid? With a Joshua courage, how shall I even be dismayed? 
I know who I am, and that empowers my mission. Seeing God, knowing my identity, empowers me to live unashamedly and boldly here under the uttermost parts of the earth. But sometimes our mission is so weak because our vision of God is so dim. We have a better minister, a better sacrifice, and he ministers in the very throne room of God. Holy, holy, holy. The Holy One who's made us holy and brought us in. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what can we do except sing your praise? We fall down in worship and submission to the Holy One of heaven. Would you join me in just quiet, reflective prayer for just a moment? Right where you're at, meditate, think on this holy God.